Hello. G'day. And welcome to Party in China. Series 2, episode the 27th. Twas the night before Christmas, and oh, how we danced, while something was stirring in the front of my pants. The year before, in Diang, I'd been forced to work on Christmas Day, and had retaliated by subjecting the students to the terrors of the walking dead. Oh, the horror, the hilarity. Aston, however, was an American-owned school, so we had Christmas off, but there was nothing for us Westerners to do, except wait for the bars to open. So, if you have to wait, you may as well wait together. So, as you're waiting together, you may as well share a drink. So, one drink tends to lead to another. So, I don't remember a lot about that Christmas, but do possess photographic evidence of me kissing Alina. I'm therefore confident in asserting it was a very merry Christmas indeed. Until the next day, when Sean and I were piecing together the sequence of events, and he mentioned that Alina had agreed to go on a date with Seattle Jim. Not only hornswoggled by a damn Yankee, again, but cuckolded by a damn Belarusian. To make matters worse, the cheeky bugger had asked her out while I was at the bar buying a round of drinks, so I paid for the privilege of their betrayal. Now, of course, it makes perfect sense that she'd want to spend time with someone who wasn't twice as old as her. But at the time, in my perilous mental state, my feelings were sorely hurt. I sulked for several days and didn't emerge from the funk until I decided to go to Shanghai for the New Year's Eve celebrations. Irish John was already down there visiting a girlfriend, so I'd travel on my own, even though Sean and my new nemesis, Jim, announced that they'd be going too. I didn't want to share a seven or eight hour bus trip with Captain Cockblock and his sidekick, Albino Boy. My 8am bus left around 8.30ish, not too bad. But then half a block from the bus station, we stopped to pick up a cranky man who waved us down. How lazy do you have to be not to walk half a bloody block to catch an intercity bus? And yet, when I called him an idle prick, he smiled and waved his thanks. This was my first solo trip to Shanghai, and I'd stupidly neglected to bring a book, so tried reading the motorway signs instead. The first was on the entry ramp. Thank you for your welcome bon voyage to you. The next was oft repeated. Important water drive prudently. Good advice, I'm sure, but hardly riveting reading. The scenery could not keep my attention either, although the rivers and creeks were prettily glittering in the weak winter sunshine, still iced over long after the snow had melted away. 
There was one moment of joy. A large black and tan dog was perched on the uppermost balcony of an either half-built or half-collapsed farmhouse. Tongue lolling, panting steam with his front paws on the parapet and his broken chain dangling down the wall. He was the master of all he surveyed. And as we passed, I briefly shared in his doggy delight. Less delightful, but more curious, were two brand new trucks driving slowly. Each carried a slightly smaller truck on its flat top, and each of those had an even smaller truck on the back, with the four cargo trucks cocooned in transparent plastic wrap. So I was looking at two truck delivery trucks delivering two truck delivery trucks which were delivering two delivery trucks. Every half hour or so, I called out, Are we there yet? About three in the afternoon, I surprised myself by yelling, Communists! Instead, I received no reply to either. Eventually, we arrived in Shanghai, and eventually I found the Stars 99 Hotel, miles away from where I thought it was. It turns out there are six Stars 99s around Shanghai, and I'd booked into one in a suburb that I'd never heard of. Entirely my fault for doing it myself online, instead of asking one of the teachers for help. But part of my self-pity party was avoiding friends. I hadn't even told anyone at Aston that I was leaving town. When I was filling out the hotel registration forms, the receptionist summoned a younger version of herself and handed her my passport. Perplexed, I watched her walk out the door with my most precious possession. The receptionist didn't have the English to explain what was going on, so I followed the younger one out into the streets, but soon lost her in the crowds. I'm no surveillance expert, but at least if you're following someone in a Western country, there's different coloured hair and height and skin tone to help you eliminate the people that you're not tracking. Feeling I'd just been robbed, I returned to the hotel, opened my room door, and again felt I'd just been robbed. The room was so small, the door only went in halfway before hitting the side of the double bed that almost completely filled the space. God knows how they got it in there. I had to push my backpack through the gap, then squeeze through sideways after it, and then lie on the bed with my feet in the air so the door could swing shut and I'd have somewhere to stand up. There was no space to walk between the end of the bed and the wall, so to get to the loo, I had to somersault across the quilt. Being careful to bring my big bisley boots down in the bathroom doorway, as that wall was made of clear glass. Fairly embarrassing, I imagine, if you were there on a romantic tryst. There was a horizontal strip of grey shade at the level that someone had decided would grant the most privacy. It was slightly above my knees. But that was more or less see-through as well, although when the sliding door was open, the shade strip doubled up and became dark enough for opacity. 
But then the bathroom door was open, so what was the point? By the time I'd freshened up, somersaulted across the bed a couple of times to get in and out of the bathroom, plus another couple of times for fun, and squeezed back out through the half-open door, my passport had still not returned from wherever it had gone on its holiday. So I headed out, footloose and document-free, which I'm pretty sure is illegal. Pretty, pretty, pretty sure. I was also glove-free, but that's not a crime, as Shanghai was cold, but a lot warmer than Ganyu. So it was a long, cold walk to Fuxing Lu and the Cheers bottle shop where I'd found Cooper's sparkling ale the last time I was there and excitedly asked if they had any more. Yes, they said, of course they did. Hooray! One bottle. Hooray! I drank it there and then in the shop. Pretty sure that's illegal. They promised to have more in a week, even saying that if I ordered a carton, they'd deliver it anywhere for free. But anywhere didn't include Ganyu, and that's where I would be in a week. Just down the road in the Blarney Stone, my favourite Shanghai Irish pub, Nick, the barman from Melbourne, advised me not to go to the Bund that night as there'd be a million or two people there already. I heeded his unneeded advice. I well remembered the insane crowds from last time, and much preferred to just sit in the pub quaffing Guinness and feasting upon delicious bangers and mash, which wasn't even on the menu, but they'd made it for me anyway, as I'd spent the whole bus trip down dreaming about it. The night progressed. I drank, I socialised, I enjoyed the live duo singing Irish songs. A couple of drunken patrons got up to sing too, and once sufficient Guinness reminded me of the lyrics to the old rebel songs. So did I. Sean and Jim arrived late, and then only two and a half or three hours later, Irish John showed up, hand in hand with his alibi, the lovely Cherry, a former student of his whose English was excellent, so he'd done a good job with her. And judging from her sparkling eyes and his wide smile, he'd done a good job with her that evening as well. So congratulations may well have been in order that night, but now they definitely are in order, as the two were recently married. Congratulations! Good on you both. My evening kept getting better, as Jim sadly reported that his date with Alina had been a disaster. She'd written out a dress for him, which turned out to be her gym, and he'd watched her practice for an hour or so, while suffering the filthy glare of her cranky coach. I, I knew that look very well. Then she'd smiled at him, said goodbye and left. Uh, my mood instantly pivoted. Everything was excellent. All was forgiven and nothing could go wrong. Oy. Around 3am, something like that, I paid my tab. 630 yuan. That's over a hundred Australian dollars. It's a big splurge for a poor English teacher from Ganyu, but more than worth it for a memorable night. 
which was about to become a lot more memorable. Nick, the barman from Melbourne, had warned me that getting a taxi would be difficult and that the driver would demand a flat fee from a foreigner, perhaps as much as 200 yuan. However, Nick, the barman from Melbourne, was wrong. It wasn't difficult. It was just about in bloody possible. There were thousands of people on the streets trying to get to their homes. Despite the Shanghai authorities generously running all public transport for an extra half hour, that meant that it finished at 11.30. 11.30, half an hour before midnight on New Year's Eve. This is China. So I started walking, trying to steer clear of the crowds by wandering off the main streets and up dark alleys. In retrospect, decreasing my odds of finding a taxi and increasing my chance of finding a mugger. It wasn't as cold as inside my apartment, but it was still freezing. Each time I emerged from the shadows and into a brightly lit major intersection, there'd be dozens, if not a hundred people, vying for any taxi in sight. After an hour or so, I found a cab parked in the middle of an intersection with people banging on the windows, offering money and destinations. But none was lucrative enough for him. However, when I pushed through the crowd, he cracked his window just enough to accept the hotel's business card. That was how we illiterates got around town, by grabbing the business card from any institution to which we might want to return. Unfortunately, all of Stars 99's six Shanghai locations were listed on the card. He asked me which one I wanted, but I didn't know. So he gave the card back and shut the window. As the crowd surged once more, I recalled a couple of street signs near my hotel and rapped on his window again. When he opened it just a slit again, I performed the universal gesture of twirling a loose fist as if winding down a window. And when he suspiciously lowered it sufficiently for me to stick my hand in, I drew a map on the condensation inside, saying, Si Ping Lu, Jai Ban Lu, they're the names of the streets. He nodded in comprehension and demanded 300 kwai, about 50 bucks. Piss off, I told him. I'll walk to the hotel. And yet, as I indignantly strode away, I realised I couldn't walk to the hotel. I didn't know where I was, where my hotel was, how far it was. Stupidly, if I'd started walking from the Blarney Stone, I'd have been fine. I walked to there that afternoon. So I returned to the extortionist and nodded yes. He unlocked the door and I pushed my way in, fighting off a young, drunk Chinese woman who tried to climb in on top of me. Away we went, with me fuming at being taken advantage of and wondering why I'd just thrown a beautiful, inebriated young woman out of my cab. Speaking of taking advantage, jeez. But mainly fuming at being taken advantage of. And all I could think to do in revenge was fart as often as possible. Silently, 
that he knew. In the next episode of Party in China, my Shanghai celebrations continue. Then I interview with another Aston school in another city, and everything goes very, very well. And if you believe that, you haven't been paying attention. I'm Party Parslow. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>